This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. In this latest episode, I'm joined by Professor Deborah Cobb-Clark. Deborah is a Professor of Economics at the University of Sydney and a Chief Investigator and Deputy Director of Research in the Life Course Centre. She is a Distinguished Fellow of the Economic Society of Australia and one of the country's leading academic economists. Deborah's research is focused on the effect of social policy on outcomes such as child development, health, education, and youth transitions. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today, Deb. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. Really delighted to be here. Deb, why don't we start by briefly describing how your research has fitted in with the work of the Life Course Centre? Sure. I became involved in the Life Course Centre in the beginning in 2014 as a chief investigator. At the time, I was director of the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research, and now I'm at the University of Sydney School of Economics. In the current centre, I led the Human Capabilities Program. In the new and refunded centre, which is going to be starting in 2021, I'm heavily involved in the new People Program. In particular, I'm going to be leading the research theme on the cognitive science of disadvantage. A lot of my research and that of the people that work with me is focused on human behavior, how people actually respond to benefits and costs of particular decisions or actions, and how those decisions that they make impact on their life course outcomes. Economics is interesting because it has a theoretical framework for understanding human behavior. And applied economics no longer is just about wages or unemployment, labor markets. It's actually a a broader framework that can be applied to any human decision. Once we start to focus on individuals, then there's a whole range of things that we need to consider, including things like their cognitive and non-cognitive skills, their personality traits, their emotional intelligence, their mental health, how they perceive the world. We also look closely at the role of policy in influencing people's decisions, in particular, how the policy environment itself shapes the decisions and behaviors, and then the outcomes that people have. When we start thinking about the previous Life Course Centre and the, the kinds of human capabilities that will give people an opportunity to get out of a a more socially disadvantaged sort of circumstance. You know, the economic perspective on human behaviour is is somewhat different or slightly different, of course, complementary, I think, to other social science disciplines that study human behaviour and whether individually or in groups. What do you feel the, the kind of the field of economics has brought uniquely to that approach to understanding some of the most important human behaviours that might influence people's life course opportunities? So economics is really a science of decision making. Economists focus virtually exclusively, actually, on the decisions that people make. What's happened to the science of economics over the past 50 years or so 
is a much broader understanding of, first of all, the types of decisions that people make that are actually relevant. It's no longer what people might typically think of as economic decisions. There's also a recognition that while the, the basic framework is very powerful, human behavior is actually more complicated. So people have particular ways of looking at the world and their perceptions matter for the choices they make. Their feelings, their emotions matter for the things that they make. The, and, and there's sort of biases in the way they view the world and the way they think about what's going to happen in the future and how they anticipate they're going to feel in different circumstances. So when you think about the family unit and you think about parents and the decisions that they make in terms of their allocation of time and what they sort of choose to invest, whatever uh, limited funds they may have, clearly these processes will influence the kinds of actions and and decisions that the the parents might complicate. But of course, they're also uh, passing on this way of viewing and thinking about the world to their children, aren't they? Yes, they are. They certainly are. Yeah. So I wonder when you think about the uh, some of the key findings of your research so far, is there anything you'd particularly like to highlight? So I think the, the most important thing that we've been doing uh, recently is to get a better understanding of what is actually the, the process that links disadvantage across generations. So why is it that disadvantage from parents is often passed on to their children? And we typically are thinking about disadvantage in a combination of low income and also a set of circumstances like single parenthood or disability that leads you to require support from the social safety net. One of the the big things that we've sort of uncovered over studying what's now 20-some-odd years of data, is that in Australia, one of the key mechanisms linking disadvantage across generations is the failure of young people in welfare-reliant families to complete high school. Could I just ask a point of clarification there? So when you think about this intergenerational kind of increase risk of younger people who've grown up in a family that has been a, a welfare recipient of, of some form or other being at greater risk, is that correct, of them themselves? Yes. What do you think the mechanisms might be? Have you been able to sort of disentangle that at all or thought about that? So one of the key mechanisms is the failure of young people in those families to complete high school. And that has a number of factors underneath it. It's not just simply about schools, although we think that things like suspensions and expulsions, which are very heavily concentrated amongst these um, children growing up in welfare-reliant households, and school non-attendance, and all of those, those disciplinary actions, which are a signal that young people are not feeling comfortable and happy and engaging with school. We also know that there's a complex relationship between families and schools. So part of the mechanism is about the disruption in young people's schooling associated with frequent school changes or frequent changes of houses. It's also linked to riskier behavior. 
And it's, it's hard to unpack whether it's risky behavior that then results in bad education outcomes or bad education leads to risky behavior. You've got a scenario where the multiple sources of vulnerability are coming together to increase the risk that the kids don't complete high school and that they're multiply determined, those things that are going on, including peer influence and a whole bunch of other things, I suspect. Yeah, and it's a particularly vulnerable stage of the life cycle. There's a lot of opportunities. Young people are developing a lot of capabilities at that age. If they're well supported and they're doing well and they're in a secure family environment, but it can also be a very risky part of the life cycle if they don't get the support they need in transitioning successfully into more adult roles. It's, uh, it's interesting. I suspect that those kids who are most vulnerable for not completing high school may have already had some pre-existing vulnerabilities in transitioning to primary school right at the very beginning that perhaps if they haven't been turned around in that schooling experience leaves them at the, uh, still being vulnerable. Yes, and I'm sure that that's, that's certainly true. We know that from a lot of the international research that children do not turn up to the school gates with the same things in their backpacks. So zeroing in on that mechanism of kids uh, failing to complete high school, do you see any particular sort of policy implications for that? One very specific policy recommendation is a rethink around the way young people are disciplined. So it seems that school that use expulsions and suspensions as a way of dealing with disciplinary problems, those things seem to result in worse outcomes. In, the, in Australia, we, we can only say that with sort of correlational evidence, but there is evidence from overseas that suggests that actually does have a causal relationship. And I know that the jobs of schools is actually very difficult and it's, it's not a simple thing to find a different approach. But it does seem that that disciplinary action further leads young people to become disengaged from schools, which is exactly the opposite of what you want. And there are huge challenges, of course, in schools picking up a process that is different to an exclusionary process because to keep kids who are challenging and difficult within the school system, you know, requires programs within schools and probably support and working with families as well. Would you say is... is Yeah, no, I certainly certainly agree with that. It's a very difficult challenge, but it's sort of makes sense in a way. If you think about children and young people, they're, the one thing they are kind of doing at that point in their life is investing in themselves, investing in an education and developing talents and skills. And the, the more prepared they are when they enter adulthood, the less disruption and difficulties they're going to face down the road. And the more unprepared they are, the greater the risk. If they're feeling miserable, incapable, they've got poor emotion regulation and so on, it's not equipping them with the capabilities that enable them to make the kind of next transition onto some further training or education uh, post-schooling. Post yeah, and we also know that's, a, that's an age which is particularly vulnerable to the onset of mental health issues. In the policy issue that we're raising here, and one that I want to really focus in on today, um, we've seen 
a number of policy areas where change has been called for for years. I mean, people have been going on about these points of vulnerability and key developmental transitions and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's really come to the forefront as part of a national agenda and in conversation this year, given the extraordinary impact of COVID-19. And I wonder if this is a silver lining of COVID-19, that it's actually put a spotlight on some issues that have been easily ignored in the past and it's creating opportunities for change now. What do you think? Yeah, I think that um, there's a lot to that. Um, the members of the Life Course Centre have been working on a collaborative research paper on this very topic. And what we've done is we brought together researchers from across the centre, across multiple disciplines. And the goal is to identify the opportunities for positive social change that comes out of COVID-19. One of the opportunities that's in front of us is that because we're in a crisis, the government has shown that they can actually make very big changes very quickly in response to that. And I mean, people say don't waste a good crisis. And this seems to be an example of that. So there's now, it, it feels to me like there's now an opportunity to do things that might have taken decades or never actually happened because we have this major public health crisis to solve. One of the positive things to come out of COVID-19 has been the very quick move to telehealth. That's something that we now have built the technical capabilities to, the doctor's offices have, have successfully transitioned online, and that's opening up opportunities to really address some of the regional disparities in access to health services, particularly mental health services, which is going to be really key in this pandemic. I was talking to some clinical psychologists yesterday who were just telling me about their practice transformation in providing telehealth, uh, mental health services and just how much patients of clients were really enjoying it. I've had a telehealth consultation around a health-related issue and it was so much better for me to actually um, not have to travel and get parking and all that stuff. And these were sort of incidental cost offsets that yeah. came from not having to go and see the yeah. specialist. And this is one of those things that, you know, there's a number of things that I hope we keep after the COVID crisis is over, and telehealth would certainly be one of them. One of the interesting things about that transition to telehealth as well is, uh, of course, we've experienced it in the world of sort of Zoom-related teaching, and but also many of the research projects that have been run through the Life Course Centre have had to transition to kind of Zoom-based delivery telemedicine, effectively telemedicine, but applied to uh, video conferencing. So the, one other area I'll mention is around the tax and transfer system. Redesigning your tax system is a major challenge. There's always winners and losers, and it's a political nightmare. And you can debate tax reform for literally decades. And we're now at this moment where the government's prepared to make very quick decisions to do very big things. And we're also at a moment where the economic response to the crisis that's been caused by the public health crisis is going to be to provide a lot of stimulus. You need to spend a lot of money. And that means that we're in this scenario where the government's opening up the purse and there's some choices to be made. 
about where that money gets spent. And if we had a set of good ideas, this would be the moment to put them on the table because there's an opportunity to spend in ways that will build infrastructure to improve people's outcomes. Housing would be a classic example of that. You know, we've made major inroads into homelessness during the crisis at a rate that people said was impossible this time last year. When you just reflect on that opportunity that you've identified, and if you thought that money were really not the obstacle at the moment and you had to have some best buys for government, is there anything that you'd zero in on and say, look, this is really important right now? Certainly continuing to build the online capabilities, right? So there will be an enormous opportunities to use the online technology to deliver education better or health better or to make jobs in the centre of Sydney actually doable from someplace in rural Australia because we're all working from home now. But of course that requires that people are on top of the technology so you may need to invest in, in computer skills and IT and it certainly means that we need to have the infrastructure to provide fast broadband. Yes, for everyone. For everyone. The more vulnerable and socially disadvantaged probably have less bandwidth than a lot of others. You know, not everyone is working from home because there are people who are not working. When you think about raising a family in an uncertain world where there's a lot of unpredictability, you know, we've got these sort of future challenges or current challenges with climate change and moving to a digital world that's a little scary. I'm just wondering to what extent in those human capabilities you would put something like digital literacy as being crucial to achieve what you were saying uh, needs to be a priority. I think it's really critical because the judgment we make in the end about kids' schooling was COVID disruptive or was it not disruptive, I think is going to ultimately come down to the technology and the digital skills of families to manage their children's online learning. And it could be a good story or it could be a bad story. Well, it could be both. It could be a scenario where parents raising kids know how important digital literacy is, but they're terrified of screen addictions and they're terrified of just yeah. the amount of time we're sedentary looking at each other through a screen. And, and these are not unreasonable concerns, but I, I'm just wondering in terms of going forward, apart from the sort of enhancement of digital capabilities, are there any other best buys you think that would be really worthwhile to focus in right now? So as an economist, I'm interested in things that provide job opportunities because the economic recovery is reliant on us creating a bunch of new jobs to replace the ones that we've lost. They don't have to be the same jobs, but we're going to need jobs. And the best social policy is always a strong labor market. If you have people in jobs and they're making smooth transitions from school into employment, you have less need for the social safety net or, or the healthcare system. I would be personally taking the opportunity to do something about the environment. If we're going to be spending a bunch of money, then this would be a moment to make investments in all kinds of green energy and renewable resources 
which create jobs and give us the opportunity to take a lead in that sector. There are other infrastructure projects. You could focus on housing, social housing, or transportation. You know, the global financial crisis, Treasury spent money on schools. That's what we did. That was a stimulus package, and we built a bunch of schools. Maybe this time we build some hospitals. All of these things create jobs. People have money. They spend money. That creates more jobs. It's interesting that you've zeroed in on the environment because obviously we're in a world of pressure relating to ecologically sustainable living. There's a lot of emphasis that the UN has had on things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals that Australia is a signatory to. And a number of things that you are pointing to actually relate to one or more of those sustainable development goals. And I think that those sustainable development goals, I mean, they're, they're not the end all and be all, but as a guiding principle, they're not too bad. They're not too bad. And we just have to translate it into actions, particularly evidence-based actions that would get us closer to the attainment of those goals, would you say? Yeah, I agree with that, right? So when you think about the kind of issues that have come up from a Life Course Centre perspective, I'd, I'd just like to go back for a moment to the policy changes that You know, it's one thing to have an idea about how policy should change. It's quite another thing for the government to adopt those policies and to actually implement them in a way that leads to a measurable outcome. And I'm wondering if you could reflect on the role of kind of research and evaluation and creating an accountability around whether or not policy-based investments have really been worthwhile or not. Do you have any thoughts on that issue? So I think one of the things that the Life Course Centre has been really successful at is opening up and making use of data sources which exist in administrative systems, for example, or in health systems, linking data in creative ways to actually ask really important policy-related questions with a goal of being scientific and independent and attempting to assess what the impact of various policies actually are. Because at the end of the day, it's not just enough to know whether something's working or not. You really need to know, is it working better than the next thing that I might have done? And if so, how much better? It means constantly asking yourself, how are you doing? Are we doing, is this best practice? Could we be doing better with the limited resources that we have? With respect to the COVID-19 kind of situation, is there anything else that you feel has changed or is an opportunity to change? And how can we propel something that's positive and future-oriented out of this? I mean, let's face it, it's been, hasn't it been a dreadful situation for so many of us? Yeah, it's been, it's been a truly dreadful year. One thing that gives me hope, a lot of hope actually, is I think there is really broad support for the social safety net, the Australian social safety net and public health systems and education systems. It's not to say that they're perfect or that we can't make adjustments, but in general, I think people are broadly supportive and mostly feel like they're doing a pretty good job and that they've actually done what they needed to do through the pandemic. It was a very scary moment to see unemployment lines suddenly going around the block 
but the system kicked in. People have benefits. We managed to make some inroads in, in a number of areas. And I think that that's partially because the pandemic has exposed a lot of people to this insecurity, this economic security insecurity in a way that they've never felt before. And we, we, you know, a lot of people in that unemployment line had no reason to expect that they would ever be there. And that sort of broad sense of, of seeing that safety net be not just about those other people over there, but about something that's going to be there to support my family, I think is, is a positive thing for all of us. I think you're absolutely right there, Deb, because, you know, in a lot of ways, it could have been us. It could have been someone we know who's very dear to us. I'm just wondering whether, in fact, the, I mean, if you think about the degree to which you've had general cooperation of the public with the public health advice and the kind of leadership that's been uh, shown by both state and federal governments here, did it surprise you at all that we got that level of cooperation from the general population? Not completely. I mean, I've been in Australia a long time now. I certainly understood, even as it was unfolding, that that was not going to be an American response. So my immediate reaction talking to someone was, well, there is absolutely no way that Americans are going to do this. But I was reasonably positive about Australia's ability to do that. And, and again, I keep coming back to this sense of collectivism that comes through the public health system and a good public education system and a social safety net. You know, I heard an analysis of the U.S. situation basically kind of pointing to the lack of that sort of support. You know, you're asking people to take really hard decisions about locking down and giving up jobs and not going to work when they're sick, but there's nothing that kicks in for them. There are no benefits, there's no unemployment, there's no, there's no guarantee that their children are going to be okay. You think the safety net was absolutely crucial to getting this degree of public support? I've, I feel it, it has to be. It, it was certainly a, a lot of pressure on people's mental health, and I think we all understood that. But if you had also seen the economic crisis, people losing their houses, people becoming homeless, people not being able to feed the family, not get access to health care, not get access to education, I think that people would have been quite right to think about whether the sacrifices they were being asked to make for the public good were actually something that they could bear. One final question. Given what we've learned about the impact of intergenerational disadvantage on life course opportunities of young people, what would you say the key policy recommendations that the Australian government should pay attention to that would have the greatest chances of reducing intergenerational social disadvantage? My top picks would be to focus on schools and families and the partnership between the two. And at younger ages, you know, we know it's all about the family. And as young people become adolescents, they develop a bit more agency. But it seems to me that that is the fundamental relationship that has to be right in order to give young people and children the skills they need to become independent adults.
the quality of that homeschool communication, the kind of relationship that needs to be there with the well-being of kids as being central to the whole thing. If we could get that happening on a very broad scale with effective deployment of evidence-based programs to support that sort of policy agenda, it's a game changer in my view. Well, thank you for your time this afternoon. It's been terrific to have this conversation with you about the, the role of economics and the Life Course Centre. Thank you for contributing to this latest episode of Families Under Pressure. I'm Professor Matt Sanders, and I'll be interviewing more Life Course Centre chief investigators in coming episodes. I hope you can tune in then. <laughs>